You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon all, all of our listeners. Welcome once again here in Drive Time Show. You're listening to Anika Rahman, and I'm joined by another co-presenter here in the studio of Voice of Islam, Dr. Tariq Wajba, who is with me. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Wa alaikum assalam, peace be upon you and all our listeners. Thank you very much. Today, uh, as per our routine, we will be discussing uh, two important topics and we will be looking inside and getting some more understanding and awareness about those topics. First, we'll be regarding the tropical diseases coming to the UK due to global warming and we'll be discussing the Gaza, what's been going on there. We'll discuss that in depth, but in the first hour, we'll be discussing especially the tropical diseases. So please uh, tune in. You can also call us on 0208-687-7878 and you can tweet at Voice of Islam UK. So please do give us a call and share your experience or if you want to add something in the show, we would be happy to take your call on the show. Now, going back uh, to the topic, as I mentioned, tropical disease is something which we need to discuss, we should know what's going on, how the global warming is happening, how these diseases are coming uh, into the UK. So in recent report, you know, by the UK Health Security Agency, health officials warned that parts of the UK could potentially become breeding grounds for mosquitoes capable of spreading diseases such as uh, uh, dengue fever, dengue fever, chikung, chikungunya and Zika virus by the 2040s and 2050s. So in the report it says based on a worst case scenario with high emissions and temperature rise of 4 Celsius by 2100 underscores the urgent need for action to mitigate the impacts of climate change on public health. So in today's show we'll discuss about the tropical disease arriving in the UK due to global warming and the Islamic perspective. The Holy Quran in the book of God Allah the Almighty which enlightens us about every matter possible about life on this planet and beyond it is no difference or it is no different with climate change for instance in chapter 30 surah al-rum verse 42 of the holy quran Allah the Almighty states the corruption has appeared on, on land and sea because of what man's hand have wrought that he may make them taste the fruit of some of their doings so that they may turn back from evil. In other words, where Allah the Almighty states, and the true servants of the gracious God are those who walk on the earth humbly. Chapter 19, verse 64. Basically, we are discussing uh, the various effects of the global warming and one of those we've chosen as a topic today is the spread of the tropical disease and the role of global warming in it because this is one of the factors which would, uh, you know, obviously it is the consequence of the global warming and that is the change in the climate and global warming, which is a gradual long-term increase in the average temperature for Earth's atmosphere due to the greenhouse effect where gases from various human activities, including the burning of fossil fuels, they trap heat from solar radiation. As a result, the overall um, temperature increases uh, the temperature in the, in the Earth. So in the, um, the impacts of global warming are being felt everywhere, 
as the globe warms, mosquitoes will roam beyond their current habitats, shifting the burden of diseases like malaria, dengue fever, chikungunya, and West Nile virus. So all these, um, um, because these, uh, the mosquitoes, they act as a vector, and these are insects, but they, they act as a vector and they carry the, uh, these viruses and the bacteria and they, they transfer um, to, uh, to the mammals, to the animals, to, to human beings as well. So they, these are the vectors. So these diseases, which are vector-borne diseases, they are likely to be, um, become more common and spread to the rest of the world where at the moment they do not exist. And uh, they can spread because of the global warming, because as the temperature, they, they require a certain temperature to survive and, and to complete their cycle of uh, reproduction. And uh, obviously, because they carry these diseases, they when they bite a human being or uh, and animals as well, they can transfer these viruses or bacteria to, the, to their... Uh, um, Prey, whatever it is, it is. It could be, you know, human beings. It could be animals. So, climate change is increasing the risk of vector-borne diseases. The sooner we act to mitigate the impacts of climate change by transitioning from using fossil fuels to clean, renewable energy, the better off we will be in the future. It is evident from uh, the sayings of the Holy Prophet, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, which are called ahadith. There is a plural of hadith. So uh, in the ahadith it is mentioned that Muslims have a religious duty to safeguard the world's natural environment. For instance, the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he said that the world is sweet and green and verily, Allah has appointed you as a representative and trustee over it. So the vector-borne diseases, uh, you know, talking about these diseases that they, they, they result from an infection transmitted to humans and other animals by blood-feeding arthropods such as mosquitoes, ticks, and fleas. So examples of vector-borne diseases include dengue fever, West Nile virus, Lyme disease, uh, of course Lyme disease is a tick-borne disease, and malaria. So these, these are the various diseases which are spread by these insects. And when they, they are feeding on the blood of the animals, they transfer these uh, viruses and bacteria to, uh, and the parasites. They, these are the, because malaria is a parasite itself. So virtually all vector-borne diseases have a climate dimension. The pathogens, vectors, and hosts associated with vector-borne diseases are highly responsive to the environments they inhabit. This means that changes in temperature and precipitation as a result of climate change can have significant impacts on the spread of vector-borne diseases. And there are three key ways climate change affects vector-borne diseases. So these three ways are, I'll just go through them one by one. The first of all is that more places will become suitable for vectors. As the temperature goes up, um, it can increase the geographic spread of uh, where vectors like mosquitoes and ticks can survive and breed. 
Increased rainfall can increase the amount of standing water, and, and that is their breeding ground, and creating more breeding spaces for uh, many vectors. And, and droughts can support breeding by forming pools of standing water from previously flowing water. So obviously, flowing water is not as dangerous as stagnant water. So when this flowing water dries up in the drought, then it forms pools of stagnant water, which becomes a breeding grounds for these uh, uh, these insects, which are which carry the vector-borne diseases. And the second way is that the warmer climates they extend the disease transmission season. Climate change is improving the climatic and environmental conditions for the transmission of many diseases. This may also lead to an increase in the duration of disease transmission seasons. So the duration of the season, because of the increase in temperature, obviously will, will give it more time um, so that they can flourish, they can breed, and uh, so in that way that will uh, uh, sort of increase the transmission of the disease. The third factor, which is temperature change, can affect the behavior of vectors. For example, increased temperature, uh, they change the biting behavior of mosquitoes, reducing the effectiveness of barriers such as bed nets. So the preventive measures which a human being takes just to avoid the bites or just to um, the, the various medicine to prevent um, because of this temperature change, they are more likely to bite and they, their bite can contain more uh, virulence and they contain these uh, viruses and parasites and and bacteria and they can they can actually um, affect their prey however it can be challenging to attribute these impacts to climate change as other factors also play a part for example Changes in land use, control measures, and human movement can also influence the distribution of vectors and spread of disease. Of course, people are traveling more and more, and uh, the, you know there is uh, the the world has become a global village, and people are traveling um, at such a um, high in such a high numbers and um, from all the distant areas that they are uh, they are the ones who are uh, being affected, and this is one of the factors as well that there will be more involvement of the disease. Uh, indeed, uh, Dr. Agbaja. Now we're going to go to our first guest, uh, who is with us, Daniel G. Bosch, MD and MPH and TM, FAS, TMH, PASS, President of American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. Um, he's expert in tropical medicine and global health. Professor Daniel Bosch is an internationally recognized leader in global health research, education and program implementation He's trained in internal medicine, infectious diseases, tropical medicine, and public health. He specializes in the research and control of emerging tropical viruses with over 25 years experience in sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, and Asia combating viruses such as Ebola, Lassa, Hantavirus, and SARS coronaviruses. Peace be upon you. Thank you very much, Daniel uh, G. Bosch, for joining us today. Thank you. Nice to be with you. To start off, could you please tell us about yourself and the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene Organization, the work you do and your mission? 
Yeah, thanks. Um, well, I, I think you've given a, a very detailed and generous introduction to me, so I won't say too much more about myself. I'm, as you said, a, a physician scientist working in various aspects of outbreak response um, over the over many years in, in Africa, Asia, Latin America, a lot of different places. Um, the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, in which I've had the privilege to be the president of for a few years and just finished my, my term, actually now the immediate past president, is a fairly large society of four to 5,000 people that um, works to alleviate the burden of tropical diseases and improve global health around the world, despite the, the name American, which comes back to our, our founding in 1903. It's quite international, for example, at our international meeting. Um, every year we have about a third of the, the attendees come from outside of the United States, so quite international. We, we also, um, in addition to putting on meetings, and have a, a journal that's focused on tropical medicine. All right, Professor Bosch, uh, are there observable shifts in the distribution of vectors that transmit diseases like dengue, malaria, or leishmaniasis? There, there, there certainly are. Um, you know, first, I, I think we should recognize that the, the diseases that tend to cause outbreaks and large pandemics are all what we call zoonoses, and so that means they're maintained in animals and spread um, through either contact with animals or often through vectors or intermediate uh, insects and, and the like and, and ticks and things like that. And so we're all tied, of course, in, into the, the same ecosystem and the, and the same impacts that climate change has on humans. Also, we can, of course, anticipate that they'll have impact, impact on those animal and, uh, and insect vectors. And so there, there's clearly a relationship. I, I was listening as I was waiting for my turn to your previous speaker and, uh, and talked about it. It's often difficult to sort out what are the specific impacts of climate change versus many of the other factors that are happening with um, migration and global travel. But nevertheless, we do have clear evidence for change in the distribution of many of the the insects and vectors and animals that um, can transmit these diseases. As it, uh, it's fairly logical, again, as your previous speaker noted, that as we get warmer temperatures in areas of the world where we wouldn't have anticipated um, a mosquito or a tick, for example, to survive, and it can survive in those areas, um, then then we, we have risk of those animals and um, vectors transmitting disease. It should all be, also be said that there will be areas as global warming occurs where it will change um, in the other direction, where it's too warm for a particular animal or mosquito. And so the, the, the distribution is not all necessarily always towards more um, a higher prevalence and more disease. It can be a lower prevalence and less disease in certain areas of the world. All right, so are there any strategies to enhance surveillance and early detection of tropical diseases in the context of changing climate patterns? There, there certainly are, but we can't really divorce them from the, the battle, basically, to in, improve surveillance for all sorts of diseases. Most of, most of the, the diseases that cause outbreaks or cause pandemics like COVID-19 and, and then outbreaks such as Ebola and things like that, they're still relatively rare events. And, and so um, if we try to create surveillance systems that are just for those particular events, it gets very, very difficult to separate, you know, and to find, as we often say, the, the needle in the haystack, you know, something that's extremely rare. And so what we really need to do is not focus on creating a vertical surveillance system. What I mean by that is one that is 
is just for Ebola or just for COVID and things like that, but nevertheless more integrated um, systems where we have we can catch the common things more that occur very frequently in many areas of the world, such as malaria and dengue, but also surveillance systems that can catch the relatively rare event. And so you may have, for example, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of people who come to a given clinic and the the rare event, the, the case of Ebola or COVID or uh, the next COVID uh, virus, for example, let's say SARS-CoV-3, um, you know, that may be extremely rare. But if you're monitoring people because you're catching and need to catch the malaria, the dengue fever, the things that are more commonly affecting people and causing disease, and then we have integrated into that systems that can also detect the rare pathogen, that's what we really need to do. Okay, so um, are there concerns about the emergence of new tropical diseases or the re-emergence of previously controlled diseases? Certainly, very much so, and and we we should be concerned, of course, um, because we have seen, for example, in the last year, um, a good example of a disease that is not new but nevertheless has broken out into different modes of transmission than previously recognized and around the world, and, and that is um, what we call mpox, previously called monkeypox virus, a, mm-hmm. a virus that um, was known only really in different parts of West and Central Africa, and now we have seen um, and ma- maintained in small animals in those parts of the world and then transmitted to humans from those animals with occasional person-to-person transmission. Now we've seen in the last year, year and a half or so, really a global outbreak with monkeypox spread around the world. So not a particularly new disease, but nevertheless, the the uh, changes in our planet with um, perhaps, perhaps climate change, but also migration and travel has really put us at risk. So one, one of the, the key points is the idea that um, there's borders that impact disease and that we don't have to be worried about a particular disease if we London, if we live in London or Geneva, Switzerland, where I live, or New York or wherever it may be, um, because it's, quote, a tropical disease is certainly no longer true, that really there's no borders for these things. The diseases can spread through different ways. They can spread through climate change, changing the distribution of an animal or a vector, or they can change from a person um, getting onto a plane or even um, a mosquito getting onto a plane, of course, inadvertently. So so we need to get beyond the idea that, you know, that there's borders for these things and the surveillance has to be um, a much, much broader regardless of where you live in the planet. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned about the COVID-19 um, virus as well. Is it a vector-borne disease? Has it been... Um, sort of proved or something? No, we haven't seen any evidence of COVID-19 being spread through any means other than person-to-person between people. Um, So um, if there's an impact of climate change on COVID-19, this is perhaps perhaps, more related to how climate change is changing migration. Um, You know, what I mean by that, of course, is if you live in an area of the world where climate change, as an example, is creating really adverse conditions to agriculture. Um, you have droughts or floods and unable to, to produce, of course, the food that's needed to sustain a population, then you're going to have more migration. So um, we we're, we're really have no evidence that COVID-19 is vector-borne. COVID-19 probably did originate from an animal in, in terms of its its first introduction into humans, but that's a different thing than a, you know, a true vector-borne disease. 
Um, as you are an expert and uh, you know you are available now, I would like to ask this question: that What is your advice to people who are like you know getting like now fourth, fifth uh, dosage of the vaccination? How important it is to have that? I think extremely important. You know what what we've seen right now. Um, the, the first of all, there, there's quite a bit of COVID nineteen transmission around the world, um, although we've kind of lost sight of that. And, you know, the reason that we've lost sight of that is because collectively we have now gotten to a point where um, the, although there's lots of transmission, there's less global disease, so less people are dying of COVID. And, and that's because um, a couple different things put together. That's because in many areas of the world that by now there, there's been significant vaccination that's created um, immunity to, to disease. And that, of course, many people, almost everyone you know, probably almost everyone I know has had COVID at least once, many times more than once. And, and most people um, will say, okay, like the, the more recent times have not been as severe. And because at each time we get it, we build a degree of immunity. Un- unfortunately, however, that immunity is not lifelong. And so we do need to be concerned that if we take our, our eyes off the ball, if you will, with that that um, over time, and if there's you know, a population that becomes a significant population that um, has not been vaccinated and is not immune, we do risk having you know really increased transmission of a new variant that could be quite dangerous. So, just just one last question relating to our topic today: that's the you know climate change, how it is affecting. How can health systems in tropical regions adapt? to the changing disease landscape influenced by climate change, etc. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll come back to my previous point that I think the key really is to not try to select out particular diseases and try to say, okay, well, we have to have surveillance for one thing or another thing. We need to have really integrated surveillance systems that are going to be able to detect the diseases and also the rare diseases. And there are some very significant technologies that have been developed over the years that are coming down in price and, and things that are you know, soon going to be implementable even in, in relatively poor areas of the world. And so we do have tools that really can help us with this task. We, we do have um, a lot of challenges right now in terms of the political will to do that. A lot of um, governments and people around the world have kind of you know, lost sight a little bit of how dangerous some of these diseases are. And of course, there, there are big challenges um, to the funding that's necessary to implement these programs, as we see, of course, um, and we understand that you know, global warming in and of itself and, and trying to keep the temperature of the planet down, that has taken a lot of the attention and a lot of the funding. And then, of course, the crises that we see around the world and conflicts in the Ukraine and Mideast have also taken a lot of attention. Appropriately so, it's not that we can argue against that, but we do have to recognize that all of these are related and, and those conflicts and the migration and the travel that um, comes from that and, and the, the change in temperatures of the planet all enhance our risk for infectious diseases due to uh, climate change. And so they are related and we we need to make sure that we um, keep our eyes on the, the task there and develop the right systems. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Daniel Bosch. Thank you for joining us uh, this afternoon. And uh, it was uh, very interesting to talk to you. And I hope that our listeners have benefited out of that as well. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you for having me. So <clears throat> this was Dr. Daniel G. Bosch who joined us today and he has discussed the 
impact we're having through global warming and how tropical diseases are increasing day by day. One of the very one of the important thing to combat and uh, you know overcome this is, is cleanliness. I think without cleanliness we cannot protect ourselves. That's what we have been advised in. Uh, COVID to uh, continuously clean your hand and be clean and try to clean surfaces and everything. And if we discuss about Islam, cleanliness, cleanliness in Islam is not limited uh, to the body and uh, you know the house. Rather, Muslims are commanded to clean the path for others and remove any items which may cause someone uh, pain or injury. And by ensuring this, the environment also remains clean. The Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, said that removing uh, harmful things from the road, from the street, is an act of charity. So see how important it is to have cleanliness around you, regardless it was street, it was used to street, your home, yourself. There has to be clean. And one of the very important way to protect anyone, yourself or people around you, the society, country, nation, is to have cleanliness uh, in, in the surrounding, and we have to be clean as clean to avoid all kind of uh, you know m- m- misfortune. He also you know added. I would like to add another uh, saying of uh, the Holy Prophet peace be upon him. He also added that the deeds of my people, good and bad, were presented before me. I found the removal of harmful objects from the road among their good deeds, and plague which might be left in a mosque unburied among their evil deeds. This is mentioned in the book of Muslim. So it is worth explaining that mosques at the time were, you know, entire and that may continue today to be the place of the largest gathering of four Muslims. Thus, from this statement of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, we learn not to spit on the streets or, you know, elsewhere, regardless wherever we are. So if a person has no other choice, then they must, you know, bury it. And not only... Uh, you know, it's, it's, it looks bad. It's, it does. You don't feel good by doing it, and there's a possibility that you, that, that spitting can cause a disease. So it's very important to have cleanliness around you and make sure wherever you are, you try to clean that place rather than making it worse than before. Looking at the temperature-related deaths and adaptation measures, we, we see that the report highlights the potential increase in temperature-related deaths, particularly in the context of extreme heat events and an aging population. Under a high warning, under high warming scenario without adaptation, the report estimates up to 10,000 deaths a year by 2050s. So the emphasis is on the necessity of adapting adaptation measures to address this, including the implementation of national heat alert systems and the adoption of strategies to protect vulnerable populations. Just uh, this report also acknowledges the global goal of limiting warming to below 1.5 degrees Celsius, but it expresses concerns that this goal may be exceeded within the next five to 10 years. The UKHSA's worst-case high-emission scenario indicates the potential for increased code-related deaths, especially as the population ages. The report also stresses the urgency of global efforts to mitigate climate change and the need for swift action to limit emissions to prevent the worst consequences. Moreover, according to Islam, humans are entrusted to look after the Earth It is our duty to repair and protect it. As the Holy Quran says, 
Verily, we have made all that is on the earth as an ornament for it, that we may try them as to which of them is best in conduct. Similarly, once uh, the second caliph of Islam, Hazrat Umar, may Allah be pleased with him, he, was, uh, he asked an old man, why don't you cultivate your land? Um, the old man replied that I am an old man who might die tomorrow. Uh, Hazrat Umar, may Allah be pleased with him, entreated him to cultivate it and even helped him in this effort with his own hands. Furthermore, the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he encouraged the restoration of wastelands, saying, He who revives a dead land will be rewarded. And when any creature eats of it, this will be counted as an act of charity for him. So this is, you know, such uh, an inspiration for everyone to to grow more plants and to, you know, the, the plantation. So anybody who benefits out of the fruits, out of the shade, um, out of the wood, uh, you know, from anything which is you know, related to that, he said that he would get benefit by getting a reward from God Almighty. So, of course, I mean, this is uh, the teaching of Islam, which is always inspires people. Uh, to do do the acts of charity. Uh, thank you, Dr. Tariq Bajwa. Now we're going to move to our <clears throat> next guest uh, who's with us, uh, Marine uh, Mariane Comparat, uh, who is director and co-founder at the International Society of Neglected Tropical Diseases. Uh, peace be upon you. Thank you very much, Marine, for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting us. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, to start off, uh, could you tell us briefly about yourself and, you know, the International Society for Neglected Tropical Diseases, what its mission is, what's its aim? Uh, yes, absolutely. So, um, uh, as you said, the International Society for Neglected Tropical Diseases, which, if you don't mind, I might refer to as ISNTD, yeah, uh, right. going forward. Um, so, this was co-founded uh, by myself and uh, the other co-founder, Cameron Rafiq, uh, over a decade ago now. And what we're really concerned with, um, as is um, suggested by the name, are these neglected tropical diseases. And I suppose before I delve a bit more into our aims or what we do, I just want to focus a little bit on these neglected tropical diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, what are they? I suppose normally we might be uh, in a room together or having a talk, and my first question would be, please put your hand up if you've ever heard of a neglected tropical disease. And uh, sadly, <laughs> most times the response is not many hands mm-hmm. at all, if any. Um, so what are they? Well, they are diseases, so it is a group of about 23 diseases rather than one specific disease. Um, some are viral, some are bacterial, some have a cure, others have a vaccine, others have nothing. But they, they, for some reason, so they're very varied, but they have been put under this one umbrella. And the reason for that really relates to the other two words, the tropical part and the neglected. Tropical meaning the areas where they tend to be prevalent. And this really important word, neglected, uh, please note it's not a rare disease, but uh, really neglected meaning insufficient research, not enough attention, uh, given the magnitude of these diseases. And just to put that in a little bit of context, um, something like cancer that we know a lot about, and these are just rough figures, um, we would see about 50 million cases a year. 
When it comes to neglected tropical diseases, you may be surprised to hear that they affect um, one, over 1.6 billion people worldwide. Mm-hmm. And yet it's still something that no one's heard of. So I do apologize for a long answer to your That's question. That's fine. Take your time. Take your time. Um, That's why I think we, everybody wants to listen to here to understand more about tropical diseases. Please take your time. Fantastic. And so I think that's the first really main point is that these neglected diseases um, are affecting a huge number of people. Uh, one in six people worldwide have one, but unfortunately, usually more than one. Um, and there is just simply not enough focus on them. So back to the ISNTD, the first thing we uh, really want to do is just raise awareness of these conditions. Um, some of them you may, I'm sure, have heard of. Um, diseases such as rabies and leprosy are on that list, mm-hmm. and others probably not. I'm thinking about um, echinococcosis, lymphatic filariasis, uh, onchocerciasis, and the list goes on. Um, but, you know, number one, we need to be speaking more about these diseases so more investment and more research can go towards them. Um, because they really are neglected diseases, but they're really diseases of neglected communities. Uh, you probably won't be surprised to find out that these diseases are rife in some of the most vulnerable or poorest communities worldwide, um, but not exclusively, but mainly. So we want to raise awareness. We also um, work very hard to raise the profile of researchers in endemic countries. Um, so that the actual frontline research being done, whether it's across the uh, African or Asian continents, is really highlighted. And also we do everything we can to make sure that collaborations between any parties who wants to tackle these neglected tropical diseases um, comes to fruition. And those are collaborations, whether they be between um, researchers, NGOs, um, pharmaceutical companies, really anyone who who has an interest um, in, in tackling these problems. Um, just one question. How, how do you separate like the, the neglected from the non-neglected tropical diseases? You know, the, um, what are the, the common ones which, which are identified and looked after, whereas the others are not like, uh, would you say malaria is a neglected one or not neglected one? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And So the term neglected tropical diseases uh, actually comes with capital letters. It's quite an official um, designation, and there is a finite list that sits with the World Health Organization, um, and diseases are added um, as and when uh, they meet certain criteria. In fact, we had some great news right at the end of uh, 2023, the disease NOMA, uh, which is neglected, even within neglected diseases, just got added. Um, So they do meet uh, quite technical criteria around um, investment in uh, whether it's treatments or research, so, you know, very low thresholds. Um, It's the kind of communities they affect, uh, also metrics on whether or not there is a treatment, a vaccine, um, etc. So uh, it is quite a technical process to, to get onto what people call the list. Uh, Malaria, HIV, and tuberculosis are not on the list. They are not considered neglected. They do receive a lot of um, coverage. There is quite um, a lot of investment into those diseases. I mean, 
If you look at research papers that have come out over the last few decades, um, only a handful really um, would would cover neglected tropical diseases compared to every other um, health condition, particularly when compared to things like non-communicable diseases, uh, whether that be cardiovascular health or diabetes or, um, uh, yes, other non-communicable diseases. Okay, so coming to the um, current, you know, the, the, our topic today is the effect of the climate change on the on the spread, the role of you know spreading of disease in the of the that of climate change. So how does uh, the ISNTD perceive the intersection between tropical diseases and climate change, and what specific challenges does this pose to global health? Um, that's a great question, and I'm afraid to say there's quite bad news but also some great news. Um, So it's not all bleak. Um, Some of the previous speakers really highlighted the the main impact really on health, uh, whether it's those living and affected by tropical diseases or not, is really through heat stress. So I won't mention that, but just to bear in mind, that is really the main impact of climate on public health. When it comes to infectious diseases and particularly neglected tropical diseases, um, I think there is really now a quite stark sense of urgency. Things are not good. Uh, We have left it too late. Um, COP28 was just a few weeks ago and it did have um, its first ever health day. But bearing in mind, it's been 27 COPs without a health day. So um, the climate is changing. Uh, Some people call it climate disruption. I think that's a really great uh, terminology. And when it comes to the infectious diseases in the neglected tropical disease list, it gets complicated because um, I'm going to probably focus on some of the diseases which you may have heard of. They've been a lot in the news and they really are um, often very climate sensitive and those are the diseases transmitted by mosquitoes in particular i'm thinking of something like dengue fever chikungunya um, other um, mosquito-borne diseases that aren't on the list yellow fever and zika and there's a number of things to consider first of all um, warmer climates have certainly given the opportunity for the mosquito to be invading and spreading to vast and new territories, both in terms of spread, but also altitude. And we're seeing these mosquitoes that can um, quite easily start to spread diseases appear in new places. Uh, that, so that, and I can come back to that in a bit more detail, that's uh, been a really alarming uh, development in the last few decades. The other flip side of uh, illness is that to become ill, for example, of dengue fever, or other viral diseases, you do need the virus, and we're not entirely sure how that responds to changes in climate. Viruses can be very sensitive um, entities. So it is complicated. There is certainly, um, if there wasn't enough research into neglected tropical diseases, there's even less in uh, climate impacts on these diseases. Mosquito-borne diseases have received about 80%, the bulk of the um, research into looking at how climate affects diseases. But when it comes to other neglected tropical diseases that aren't mosquito-borne, 
um, the evidence is really very scarce and we are running out of time um, to do something, as I think previous speakers have explained uh, very well in terms of this urgency. Um, so really to summarize and answer your question, um, the main impact of climate on neglected tropical diseases at the moment is definitely in terms of mosquito-borne diseases, but we also have this really big black box where we're not quite sure how other parasites, um, other bacteria might respond to evolving climates. So what adaptive measures are being recommended or implemented to mitigate the impact of climate change on the transmission dynamics and geographic spread of neglected tropical diseases? So just um, focusing perhaps on these mosquito-borne diseases, uh, which are at the moment, um, you probably have seen them dominate a lot of the headlines over 2023. I mean, the situation has been extremely alarming in countries such as Bangladesh that really faced a huge outbreak, but also in Peru where very senior health officials have um, resigned because of their uh what was perceived as an inadequate response to these major outbreaks. There were, there's been an unprecedented amount of locally acquired cases of dengue in places like France and Spain and Italy. So uh, I think some of the answers to those questions are, are really very suited to this uh, urgency around mosquito-borne diseases. Um, on the one hand, the good news is that because it's now apparent that something like dengue fever that was present in only about nine countries back in the 1970s is now in over 130 countries and threatens more than half the world's population, um, according to the WHO's own statistic. Um, the scientific and the global health community is taking this very seriously. Whereas uh, only recently there was no vaccine and no treatments available for something like dengue fever that can really overwhelm a health system. I mean, if we think back to something like the start of the COVID epidemic, a pandemic, sorry, and you remember those um, scenes of hospitals being completely overwhelmed, patients in corridors, staff working kind of round the clock to breaking point. Um, this is what a dengue outbreak looks like. And this is um, at risk of happening in more and more new territories. So in the pipeline, um, you know, the scientists are looking at uh, vaccines. That's the great news. Also, treatments are in the way, and I'm not worried about that because there's going to be a lot of movement. In terms of other adaptive strategies, um, really the number one would be to minimize the, um, the habitats for these mosquitoes to become established. And I think that's really important, and that's where something that each and every one of us can do um, is impact on that, is mm. reducing the habitats for mosquitoes. And, and that's where community engagement and, uh, you know, families and villages, neighborhoods working together um, is very important. So, um, as you have mentioned it a little bit, so can you a bit uh, further say, is how does you know, society work to ensure that affected populations have access to essential treatments uh, for neglected tropical, tropical diseases, and uh, especially we're discussing in resources-limited settings. Yeah, absolutely. So we are just a platform, and the main thing we want to do is make sure that something like 
uh, you know, a major health threat such as dengue fever, such as chikungunya, and others that are on the uh, a bit on the list or not on the list are really highlighted and put forefront of the agenda. Uh, we have, for example, we're now coming up to the fourth year of a World Dengue Day. Uh, we were also we worked really hard with a huge range of partners to make sure that this disease called Noma. Uh, came onto the list. But being on a list is not always enough. I think it's really important to keep talking about these diseases. And sometimes it may come as a surprise that governments themselves, uh, who are faced with a huge array of public health challenges, uh, really need to be reminded as well um, that there are certain things that they must invest in. Uh, when it comes to climate change and infectious diseases, international collaboration will be absolutely paramount. And so that's why we make sure that at ICNTD we work with absolutely everyone from a very high level Ministry of Health officials all the way down to the public. Um, we have a lot of online events that are just really open to everyone across a wide range of topics. Some are very technical, but some are also um, you know, much more uh, open to all sorts of audiences. And, and I would certainly encourage everyone to join, whether it's through our YouTube channel or our website, to, to tune in and listen to some of the amazing work that's being done around the world around these neglected tropical diseases. Mm-hmm. So in the context of neglected tropical diseases, how are communities being effectively engaged and educated about the climate-related factors, you know, contributing to the prevalence of uh, these disease? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's the million-dollar question. And for a long time, um, I think there's been perhaps some, um, uh, you know, some delays in really bringing communities on board. There's this uh, notion that you should not lead by the solution, meaning that um, those who are, have great awareness of the public health issues, whether they be at government or um, scientific level, they might have you know, real solutions in mind. And like the masks, you know, people said everyone should wear a mask in COVID, but then different people had different views with that. And it's really important when it comes to working with communities to understand the community and, and know what's important to them. Um, I think when it comes to uh, a community like the, the Muslim or Islamic communities, there's already a wonderful bedrock there that health officials can work with. Um, again, alluded to by some of the previous speakers, um, health and hygiene is quite prominent in religious traditions. And if we focus for a moment um, on Islam, well, the concern for hygiene and pathogens, as you know, is, for example, in meat and food preparation or just more general personal hygiene is very, very important. And so marrying those kind of messages with already pre-existing priorities in communities um, is really very successful. Um, The pandemic gave us actually an opportunity to be reminded that For example, the notion of quarantine was actually in the Sunnah for some 1,400 years. Um, And I was also really interested to learn that death by an infectious disease, uh, namely the plague, was one of the very few deaths which would guarantee you um, entry into paradise. Um, So I'm just drawing on some examples which I hope would be relevant to your audience. But 
um, it's really very important when it comes to something like disease, when it comes to a collaborative community effort to tackle something. Um, and the impact of climate on health is it's really huge. It's very hard to quantify. It can only involve collective effort. So making sure that you're doing things that work for the people who are affected um, should be really the major concern when designing these um, uh, interventions. And that's what we're very mindful of at ISNTD. Uh, indeed. Thank you very much. Uh uh, Marianne, for joining us today, you have given us all kind of aspects and Islamic aspects at the end as well. Uh, and it was a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, hope our listeners have, uh, you know, got some awareness about this uh, tropical diseases. And thank you once again uh, for joining us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you so much for inviting us. Thank you very much. So you were listening to Marianne Kompat, who is co-director and co-founder at the International Society for Neglected Tropical Diseases. So she has discussed everything in depth and giving us good insight to what's been happening and what can be done, how society can uh, play a big role in it. So looking at the impact, you know, there's a rather unequal impact on vulnerable communities because, you know, um, our society, obviously, it's variable. It's uh, lots of people. They're living in different classes of society. And uh, obviously, the, all the diseases, they affect them differently. The report, uh, which we were talking about earlier, that uh, it has em emphasized that the worst health effects of climate change will disproportionately affect vulnerable and disadvantaged communities. An aging population is identified as a key driver of national climate vulnerability, with climate risks mapping onto existing health and inequality gradients. Vulnerable groups, including children, people, and those with disabilities, those experiencing homelessness, and individuals in specific settings like prisons and social care are identified as particularly at high risk. The unequal distribution of impacts stands not only geographically, but also across communities and individuals. Of course, uh, there is an effect on the, on the mental health, and the report highlights the mental health impact of severe flooding with individuals facing a high risk of depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Under high emission scenario, more people in the UK are at risk of severe flooding, making mental health considerations a crucial aspect of climate change adaptations and response strategies. The Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, understood the significance of trees in protecting the environment from climate change thousands of years ago. He always forbade his companions from destroying trees and laid great emphasis upon planting more of them. The Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, there is none amongst you who plants a tree or sows seeds and then a bird or a person or an animal eats from it but that would be taken as an act of charity for him. Well, you're not right, Dr. Tariq Bajwa. I think at the end, it's actions we need to take. Uh, you know, we have to be more greener, plant more trees, and moreover, you should use public uh, transports rather than use, using uh, cars. You know, additionally, you know, reducing the amount of energy we use in our homes can also protect our environment. Simply act like switching off the light when you leave room saves electricity and is thus, you know, eco-friendly. Uh, one other thing I would like to mention here, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community holds you know, various workshops for the both young and old to promote a greener society. This includes the planting of trees, your school and local council most probably also have environmental clubs. So why not give it a go and sign up to them 
while you are at it, why not also make sure your plastic water bottle also goes into the right recycling bins? There are small things which if we you know, follow, then definitely we can bring a change. In the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty says, Eat and drink, but exceed not the bounds. Surely he does not love those who exceed the bonds. Chapter 6, verse 142. The Holy Prophet of uh, Islam says, Don't waste water, even if you were, uh, you know, by the running water. So all these things we find uh, through this that we have to make sure that we are not um, misusing anything Allah Ta'ala has given to us. And one of the last thing again, you know, Islam and the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has emphasized on cleanliness, the cleanliness of environment. And, you know, he extended to the situation where individuals needed to relieve themselves, although we must take into account that there were no conventional toilets in that area. Still, his instructions are valid today. He said, keep away from three things which provoke crossing, relieve, uh, relieving yourselves in a, a watering place, on the, you know, passageways and in the uh, shahadat places so we have shaded, to, places. shaded places so we have to make sure that we follow this instruction even now and if we start following the instruction which the Holy Prophet Sallallahu and the Quran has given simply we can live a life and simply we can live in in, 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 a, in an environment which is more cleaner and better for us now we're gonna end today's show uh, of course much, a lot can be said on this uh, there's so many things we couldn't discuss today, but uh, I hope our listeners have uh, got understanding what tropical diseases are and how they are impacting of society and how we can protect ourselves. And uh, we have mentioned all kind of aspects. Hope uh, you have uh, uh, got something new today. Uh, now we're going to end the show. In the second hour, we'll be discussing about Gaza and uh, we'll, we'll have some guests as well who will be discussing on that. So please join us after the news break. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Allah has decreed, Most surely, I will prevail, I and my messengers. Verily, Allah is powerful, mighty. The Arabic expression, Al-Aziz, means the mighty, one who is dominant, that cannot be dominated, one who is powerful and superior over all else. Al-Aziz is that striking being who alone has the power to bestow prophethood upon man and to guide mankind towards righteousness. It is this eminent attribute of Allah that has allowed great prophets of the past to succeed in their respective missions. The chief of all prophets 
the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was undoubtedly the most cherished recipient of God's limitless favors. At the dawn of the victory of Mecca, the Muslims marched wholeheartedly. After being betrayed by their treaty-bound brothers, this was a day where the inhabitants of Mecca witnessed God's might. The reign of cruelty, which had caused the followers of Islam unimaginable agony, was brought to an abrupt end. The peaceful conquest of Mecca was made possible only through God and His might. Allah's might is widely experienced by all prophets of this world. The promised Messiah on whom be peace came at a time when people had become void of morality and were ruled by Mulvis and extremists who no one dared to oppose. The promised Messiah on whom be peace expressed that at the time of his claim, not many believed in him. In fact, he faced an onslaught of ignorance, hatred, and ridicule. The promised Messiah on whom be peace faced numerous fatwas and false court cases were made against him. In these moments, it seemed almost impossible that the promised Messiah on whom be peace and his godly mission would prevail. But it was the might, Al-Aziz, that silenced the jesters, created love where there had been hatred, and brought justice in times of unfairness. Al-Aziz stood like a mountain safeguarding the promised Messiah on whom be peace from all forms of harm. This was the might of the powerful God that enabled his devout servant to reign over his opponents and to once again radiate the ever-bright light of Islam upon the darkened world. Al-Aziz is the great altruistic God whose power is dominant over all others. His might is a magnificent sign of the truth of his prophets, and their prevalence is evidence of his existence. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back after the news break. Uh, we will be discussing and the topic as I mentioned in the first hour. We'll be discussing especially about Islamophobia and Gaza-Israel conflict because somehow it's related to Islamophobia, what uh, has been portrayed about Islam, what 
is the reality. And we'll be discussing this topic in depth and understand more about it to discuss, you know, both ways that what things are changing, how things are changing and what, uh, you know, how what Islam says about it, how we should be aggressive, we should be peaceful. So we'll be discussing uh, all the aspects of Islamophobia and the Gaza-Israel conflict. Today uh, we will be having, uh, we have another co-presenter here in the studio of Islam, Dr. Tariq Bajwa, who will be uh, shedding some light upon this topic as well. And you can also call us on 0208-687-7878 and tweet at Voice of Islam UK and visit our website www.voiceofislam.co.uk. Moving on to Islamophobia, I think one of the very important subjects to discuss because, you know, especially Ahmadiyya Muslim Association has this understanding that awareness is very important. Rather than discussing if you have something in, in your mind about something by listening to telly or by people, it's not uh, you know, a great idea. It's better to discuss something and understand what other has to say. And then definitely we can have the understanding, which is true understanding. And it will be uh, something which, you know, uh, bring us near rather than, you know, uh, breaking us apart and, uh, you know, have hate uh, within our hearts. So if we discuss about Islamophobia, you know, which is defined as fear, hostility, uh, prejudice and discrimination directed at Islam and Muslims has long been present in the West. It even you know, existed before September 11, 2001. However, since the 9-11 tragedy you know, happened, Islamophobia seems to have increased more rapidly. The fifth caliph of Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmad, May Allah strengthen his hand has said that there is no need to fear Islam as Islam is not a religion of extremism or one that permits suicide attacks or indiscriminate violence. There is no need for Islamophobia because Islam's true teachings are of peace, tolerance and mutual respect. Islam's teachings are of upholding human values and protecting the honor dignity and freedom of all people. This address was given on, you know, at 14th Peace Symposium in the UK on 25th March 2017. So, you know, the Khalif, the Khalif the, uh, uh, Muslim Association, we've been seeing from very long time since uh, uh, Allah the Almighty has chosen him as a Khalifa of uh, Islam. He has been continuously mentioning this and trying to raise awareness and tell people that what actually Islam means, Islam means peace, there's a tolerance, there's mutual respect, rather than, you know, thinking that Islam is a religion of extremism, you know, you know, it permits suicide attack, the teachings of Quran is something where, you know, to kill other people and to do jihad. So we need to just discuss everything and understand what actually Islam says. Islam is a religion of peace. What is jihad means and how we can do jihad in this day and age and how the Ahmadiyya Muslim Association is actually doing the jihad. Uh, and, and I think if we are very uh, effectively uh, doing the jihad and we are seeing the results as well that how people are, you know, turning toward Islam Ahmadiyyat because they understand the true teachings of Islam. So it's nothing to uh, worry about, nothing to fear because Islam is a religion of peace, and that's what it teaches in, in the Holy Quran and the, you know, the saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. So fundamental 
to Islamic teachings, uh, I've mentioned that is that Muslims live peacefully with all other members of society and never cause them any harm or distress. Despite this, many people associate Islam with violence or, you know, as I mentioned, warfare, war, warfare, even though nothing could be further from the truth. No matter what terrorists may claim, under no circumstances are indiscriminate attacks or killings ever justified. Islam has, you know, enshrined the sensitivity, uh, sensitivity of human life. So sometimes we listen that what uh, the it's uh, some people or some terrorists they are presenting the teaching of Islam in a way that they think they are doing according to the Holy Quran. So we have to understand clearly that Islam and in the Holy Quran there's nowhere where it says that killing an innocent people or a people just just going and kill somebody is not allowed in Islam. If people have this understanding, if they're doing according to their understanding, it's not what Islam teaches. It's their understanding. And we need to understand, we need to separate these two things. You know, something, if somebody is using some kind of, uh, you know, uh, scripture with his understanding, that that's what it means. It doesn't mean that that's what the scripture says. So we need to understand what scripture actually say and what you know, the teaching of the Holy Quran, what Islam says, and how majority of people are understanding that teaching, rather than the few people in the world claiming that we have this understanding, now we're going to do and that, and ultimately what they're doing, they're doing against the teachings of the Holy Quran. So looking at the history of Islamophobia, you know, where does it come from? In fact, if we look back and see, you know, uh, not, not, not very long ago, but, but um, I think decades, we will look behind where we see that the only um, news source we had at that time was maybe radio, maybe TV, and TV also had limited times when you, you could hear from them. And the, the newspaper, of course, has, has been there for, for, for very long, and they had a, an impact on, uh, on the readers, so who, whosoever the readers. And, and th those newspapers were considered to be a reliable resource of information. But with time, the media has developed and is developed to an extent where, you know, there, there is no control over it. There is no um, reliability. So you have to think for yourself to what percentage of what you are getting is the truth and what percentage is biased information, which is quite common nowadays. It is manipulated. It is, uh, you know, people try to convince you even if it is the wrong information, even if it is something, but because of the their own interests, because they want to spread the news, they want to become popular in a you know in a very short span of uh, you know time, they would they would like to become popular and more people viewing them. So all these things they have influenced the media, and the media, of course, would not give a news which is a, a news for peace a news, some good news, but they would always try to give you something which is uh, um, sort of uh, something of violence, something which is so that, you know, this news spreads very quickly, more people watch it, more, more people see it. So, so, so they are, they are, it is the selling point. So, so that is why, um, you know, I remember, say, you know, there was a, there was a small joke that somebody asked me, you know, what is, what is the news? What's the difference between an information and a news? And he said that uh, if a dog bites a human being, 
it's a statement it's a simple thing but if if uh, a human being bites a dog it's a news mm. so, so so that was that simple but now you know everything there is a spin around and everything and and one of the things which has come out of that it has always been that the media has been against islam and there has been a prejudice against uh, the islamic teachings which are which has always been that of peace but hardly anybody you would see would stand up and say that uh, islam teaches peace and islam is teaching of is a um, you know um, islam teaches peace and it's a peaceful religion um and uh, you 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 remember craig considine is one of the writers american writers who has written a book about uh, the holy prophet may peace be upon him and he said that islam is a religion of peace and humanity so um, that that's the one which is you know which has one out of you know millions that the one person has stood up and say that this is the truth i have studied it and this is what it says so but you will find hardly anybody who would who would be speaking in the favor of islam that islam is a peaceful religion particularly you know the the point of view as you mentioned earlier the head of the uh, ahmadiyya muslim community our khalifa he has been for many many years he has been talking about uh bringing the world to peace bringing the world towards creator where how you can come to create peace in the world because he has been warning that we are at the um brink of uh, a war unless we do something about it and uh, we we clarify our misunderstandings and we we, we come together on on something which is common amongst us and that is what is the teaching of the holy quran as well uh, who invites people that at least you can come those who believe in one god we can we can unite together on one point so that you know we are peaceful we live peacefully and we we um, also spread peace to the world so just looking at the history of the growing islamophobia a recent report from the united nations highlights growing islamophobia and excessive surveillance of muslims in countries around the world the united nations human rights council report is unsparing in its critique that governments around the world should do more to combat islamophobia the report officially titled as countering islamophobia anti-muslim hatred to eliminate discrimination and intolerance based on religion or belief um, notes an overall rise in islamophobic incidents around the globe the united nations report calls for governments around the world to fight discriminatory practices against muslims across all settings from police inform- enforcement to the filtering of islamophobic content on social media now just earlier i was talking about the influence of media the media and its influential effect on the masses have increased exponentially in the past 5 decades initially the news and media channels were limited to the telegraph then new technical technological inventions gained access to a variety of ways to further spread news to the masses such as radio newspapers magazines television websites and now mobile applications as well so these are jobs that use the media there are jobs that use the media to make people do or think things they otherwise would not so there are people behind the curtain pulling the puppet strings they are called media manipulators so media manipulation currently shapes everything we read we hear and watch online everything 
So in the old days, we only had a few threats to fear when it came to the media manipulation. The government propagandists and the hustling publicists, they were serious uh, threats, but they were the exceptions rather than the rule. They exploited the fact that the media was trusted and reliable. Today, with our blog and web-driven media cycle, nothing can escape exaggeration, distortion, fabrication, and simplification. So the media has a powerful influence on us, and therefore it should be the responsibility of those who work in the media industry to ensure they are portraying a just and fair picture. But where would you find them? That's the question. Yes, I think uh, you're very much right. And we need to understand that uh, you know the media portrayal of Islam, but Islam you know, teaches to always speak the truth and act with justice. And, you know, as you're mentioning about media, we've been looking from, you know, uh, many years that, you know, when you're presenting something, there should there should be truth behind it. But sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's a phrase, there's, there's two sides of a picture. If you're mentioning just one side, you're just, you know, misguiding people. So it is very important when we're discussing anything, regardless, it's, it's about Islamophobia or anything, we have to give a full, full, full picture. You know, if we're discussing about Gaza, sometimes we're discussing Gaza, sometimes we're discussing the other side is, is Israel. But if being in media, being a person who is responsible to convey a true message or, you know, uh, raise awareness in a way that people can see the both pictures, this is very important. You know, we, have, we can't present a picture, you can't start a, a discussion from right in the middle. There is a you know, starting of a discussion, there's an end of a discussion. There's a starting of a matter, then there's end. It's just presenting in the middle. Something is happening, you know, it doesn't just justify as, uh, you know, the, the incident is going on. So anything happen, occur in, in, in anywhere. You know, if you are doing some kind of investigation, you can't pull up from the from the middle. has to be, you know, from the, from the beginning, how everything started, how is going, what happened in the middle, and how it ended. So, it's very important, and again, as we're discussing about media, it has a responsibility to mention, if they see especially, you know, Islamophobia, when they discuss that uh, the, the, he was a terrorist or they have done that, that he's done this, and the name of Islam, I think there's another responsibility to mention that whether it was according to Islam or not. And, you know, Holy Quran says that, you know, uh, speak the truth and act with justice, and Muslims are told in there, the Holy Book and Holy Quran, as was, as was saying, that who you believe, be steadfast in the cause of Allah, bearing witness in equity, and let not a people's enmity incite you to act otherwise than with justice. Be always just. This is needed to righteousness, and fear Allah the Almighty. Surely Allah is aware of what you do. In this verse, you know, Allah the Almighty has commanded uh, the people to be fearful and to do justice uh, to the people even if they have any dislike towards them. And I think it's very, it's, it's, it's not an easy job to be truthful, or to be just. It's very hard to be just and do as it is, as we, as we see. You know, sometimes we dislike somebody and we, don't, we think to hide some part of the story, it, it, it's, it's not right. And that's what we're discussing. It's nothing, you know, against anyone. It's just to present what it, what is the reality and presenting an in incomplete picture as yes. well. I mean, that is also, um, it is being unfair, being uh, unjust. 
Very much right. And I think uh, be, being a Muslim is it's a responsibility as well whenever we uh, you know, do anything. We have to be fearful with Allah the Almighty. And the thing, you know, how these things start. These, these things start when you don't have fear of Allah the Almighty. If you know we have a being, we have to be presented before Him. You are, you are careful. Then you, you know there's somebody who will ask us. And if, you know, innocent uh, has been uh, hurt by you, Definitely, you will be asking the hereafter. But again, these things are related with religion. A person who have uh, this understanding that he will present it before God, definitely he follow the commandments of Allah the Almighty. Is you know, it's, it's not a teaching of, of Islam only. There are other religions who says that uh, to, to be justful, to be you know, uh, polite to others, do not hurt anyone. You know, give the due rights to people. So it's very important that we should see what Allah the Almighty wants from us. Allah the Almighty wants to live with peace. And that's what Islam teaches. And that's what there's some other religion which have these teachings to live in a peace. And one of the, you know, uh, I was listening <clears throat> to King's uh, speech on Christmas where he said that, you know, we have to be careful if innocent has been hurt in this world. And I'm just giving a uh, summary. But he has said in a very, very beautiful speech he has given that, you know, even Christianity says that, that you have to live peacefully, you have to take care of people who has been, uh, you know, uh, affected by the uh, destructions happening around the world. So it's very important that uh, when we discuss anything, we have to be just, we have to be uh, truthful, and we mention what is the reality. And that's how you can have, you know, uh, great love and uh, uh, in each other's heart rather than, you know, bringing hate or uh, increase, which is already there to just to ignite once again the hate within the heart of, uh, you know, people who are living uh, together. His Holiness, um, you know, has mentioned one of the, uh, one of the aspects I would like to mention uh, to you, to all our listeners, that he said that Western media overly amplifies on one side of the story while you know, uh, sidelining the other to the back pages. For example, recently among the women who were freed by Hamas, one woman said she was treated well in captivity. This story was you know, relegated into a corner, while a statement saying Hamas imprisonment was a hell is continuously making headlines. So true justice requires presenting all affairs. Let the world determine who the opposer and oppressed are. To what extent this war is, you know, warranted and at what point it should end. All the state of affairs should be presented to the world as opposed to presenting merely one-sided coverage. And I think this is what we're discussing. Again, it comes if you are truthful and just, you would present the true story. So the relevance of Islamophobia in the war on Gaza, I mean, this is something which is going on right in front of our eyes we have observed right from the beginning how it started how um yeah and, and also the all the information which we are getting from uh, this conflict and what is what is going on in israel islamophobia takes the form of anti-palestinian racism uh, it is a deep-rooted prejudice within israeli society a document entitled calls for ethnic genocide and the dehumanization of Palestinians. Um, this, this is the name of the document. It calls for ethnic genocide and dehumanization of Palestinians. It proves beyond reasonable doubt that the problem of Islamophobia in Israel 
is a systemic and structural one. It is an issue that exists across the ultra-right-wing Israeli government as well as within a large segment of the general population. The document, which continues to be updated, currently lists almost 200 examples of racist and dehumanizing speech from Israeli officials, commentators, the general Israeli population, as well as Israel supporters from all over the world. One example of this is when Yoav Gallant, MK, Israeli Defense Minister, stated on October 9, 2023, and these are his words, I have ordered a complete siege on the Gaza Strip. There will be no electricity, no food, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals, and we act accordingly. Um, unquote. So these are the words of uh, the Defense Minister of Israel. So if we, you know, it is reasonable to consider that this statement refers to the people of Gaza rather than just Hamas, since the siege on Gaza was applied onto the entire population. So another example is the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's speech, where he stated on October 28, 2023, um, and uh, he said, you must remember what Amalek has done to you. These are Amalekites. You know, by comparing Palestinians to Amalekites, Netanyahu evokes the final command by God regarding the Amalekites in the first book of Samuel. And it's mentioned there that now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So, so see, this is the information. This is uh, this is what he's referring to. That that's what you are supposed to do. And practically, if we look at it, what is happening? They are following these um, commandments. So, this comparison has been made repeatedly by uh, Netanyahu, and can be seen as an implicit call to genocide. More crudely, in Israel, there has been a popular trend on social media of IDF soldiers making videos mocking the suffering of Palestinians. The videos show IDF soldiers dancing to music, dressed up as Palestinians with the use of blackface and Muslim headscarves. On December 1st, 2023, an IDF soldier posted a video captioned POV, you are freeing Palestine, showing him defecating in a bathroom belonging to a now displaced family in Gaza with an Islamic prayer mat placed in the bathroom floor. So these are just a few of the vast number of examples collected in the document showing the depth of dehumanization of Palestinian Muslim identity. The theme is consistent throughout. Muslims are the enemy. The idea that Palestinian lives are lesser in worth has been manufactured through a long campaign of dehumanization that finds its roots right at the inception of the State of Israel. The famous quote from Golda Meir, uh, and uh, the, the quote is, peace will come when the Arabs will love their children more than they hate us. This embodies the false stereotypes Israelis hold of Palestinians, that they are missing the, the core human characteristic maternal love, placing Palestinian mothers lower than animals. And like a stray dog is cared, is uncared for and mistreated, the unloved Palestinian child becomes acceptable, 
collateral damage. Um, you know, Dr. Talibajo, when we're discussing this, as you just uh, read what he said, you know, sometime if, again, you know, I think the Islamic teachings are superior, that where it's very clearly mentioned that one should not be killing children, you know, women, destroying trees and killing animals, because these things are not that you're fighting is something else you want to do. You want to destroy everything. Secondly, you know, if someone, as he said, that they should take care of their children, they should love their children rather than, you know, focus and killing Israel. I think it's not that they are thinking about killing them. It's just, you know, if you cannot breathe, of course, you have to do something. And a, if a big, a big number of people are living in a place where they are just there, they are cut off the world, that you can go everywhere, you can enjoy the world, you can do everything, you can become doctors, engineers and, and do anything you want. You're living your life, and on the other side, there are people who are slaves, living a very ordinary life. There are limited resources. And uh, that people actually belong to that country, and th- that's their country. And on the other side, that they're so much depressed that they can't do anything. Of course, you know, if something happens, I sometimes think that if this same thing start happening in this country, God forbid that... If somebody start coming in and start taking over, of course, you know, we will uh, go after that and they will take a measures that to protect the country. And exactly the same situation is happening there. And, I, you know, if I was thinking that, and I think I would like to ask you as well, whether it was Muslims who taken from Jews that land? No, right? It was some the people who was British Empire was there. Well, that's the that's the established fact now. People know the facts, and yes. it, it cannot be hidden now. Although, you know, uh, the the whole uh, media uh, campaign, which uh, you know uh, the the Israelis have controlled, and they have controlled to the extent that many a times even um, our own British government has uh, you know uh, has not voted in in the um, uh, where they voted for a ceasefire. And they have they have abstained the the uh, right of vote, so uh, to the extent this this is to the extent they have influenced people. Although in general population there are millions of people who are in favor of ceasefire, and they are because they are they know what is the 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 facts are, yeah. and uh, on ground and and many of the Jews, of course they have come out and even in America they be the. Many Jews who has come out, they say that this is not the teaching of Judaism at all, and they say that we are against it. And yeah. this is they they have um, usurped the rights of the Palestinians. They should be given their land back, and uh, they the Jews had no right to come and uh, yeah. take over their lands. And then, not only that, you know, if even if they have taken the land, then they should rule with justice. That's the principle, and uh, mm. but th- that's not the case. There is a prejudice at every step and they have made the lives of Palestinians hell even in the peace conditions um, not to talk about the war conditions yeah. which is going on now. I think that's what their teaching says if you are pious if you are worthy of acquire that land then the land will be given to you. It is not something if you are you know just a, a, a follower of a religion and that you have uh, you will be given this uh, you know land. It's very clearly mentioned in the you know Torah that if you are worthy, if you are pious enough, if you have entitled, uh, then you will be given, or you know the land will be given to the people who are, you know, uh, pious people or righteous people. 
And, you know, of course, we cannot say if they're righteous or not, but that's, that's what they know. But, you know, if the land has been taken from you, it's not the Muslims have taken. It was Roman who taken it from them. And, you know, and after many years, you know, the Roman slowly came to Islam and people accepted Islam. And that's why we see Islam there. And they were living very peacefully until, you know, as they start arriving there, kicking them out and everything start happening. And, you know, it's, it's very important that, you know, the ceasefire should happen and there should be discussion. They should be sit down and rather than, you know, increasing the hate, they, they, they should do something that there should uh, be some kind of understanding between them. I was listening to one of the Donald Trump uh, interview where he said that, you know, it's not a matter of fighting. The hate which is increasing every single day, that's very bad. You know, it's not just bad for, uh, you know, uh, um, Gaza or Palestine or, or other places, you know, that fire can increase to other countries, which is very dangerous. And we should uh, do something, you know, of course, where they kind of have settlement, they have understanding with each other. And if you go on social media, uh, the Palestinian children, they sometimes come up, you know, there's a live chat on YouTube chat, some uh, videos going on where they clearly say that, OK, we don't want uh, Palestinian people want to kill them. And if children is thinking like that, what would happen at the end? They are, you know, the, the, their brain has been washed. And ultimately, they think only one thing, that they are bad, they should be killed. Of course, you know, we also uh, discriminate what happened on 7th of October. Again, it's not according to the teachings of Islam. If somebody is depressed, you know, a person or a small group of people have done that, that we cannot, you know, kill all those people just living in Palestine, uh, and not have given due rights, and people who have attacked is other people, the other group, the other militant group. We cannot, you know, uh, kill everybody. Be what what they did, you know, is something. If somebody is uh, doing bad, you cannot give, uh, you know, uh, kill other somebody else because somebody else did, did wrong. So we need to understand these things, and this very clear instruction of the Holy Quran that La Tazir Wazatun Wizra Ukhara that Allah Ta'ala won't burden somebody else. If you have done something wrong, Allah Ta'ala will ask you rather than asking somebody else that you know, no, no other being will be burdened because of your sins. So that's we need to understand and that's very clear in the you know, teaching of Islam and that's what I think um, Israel should have followed that if they have did wrong, they should have gone after them rather than killing the innocent people, you know, uh, women, elderly, destroying every single thing. So it's it's against you know teaching of Islam and uh, against humanity I should say. Absolutely, absolutely. And looking at uh, you know the rise in the recent hate incidents after this this uh, conflict, this this war, uh, hate crimes against Muslims and those perceived to be Muslim in the United Kingdom are up by 140 percent compared with this time last year, according to the British police. Now, the United Kingdom Anti-Islamophobia Organization, its name is Tel Mama, uh, has received a seven-fold increase in reports of Islamophobia since October 7, when Hamas fighters attacked uh, southern Israel, killing 1,139 people and taking 240 others captive, including women and children. Since then, more than 20,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israel's bombardment of Gaza, including at least 8,000 children, according to health officials in the enclave. So you see, the this is this is a comparison 
And um, so um, in the United States, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, a Muslim civil rights group said it had received 2,171 complaints of Islamophobia and anti-Arab bias since October 7, a 172% increase since the previous year. Last month, three, mo three men were shot in Vermont, and around the same period, Stuart Seldowitz, a former advisor to President Barack Obama, was captured on video taunting and threatening a fast food vendor in Manhattan with Islamophobic abuse. While the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights has a lengthier definition of Islamophobia, the UK's all-party parliamentary group on British Muslims uses the following definition. Islamophobia is rooted in racism and is a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness or perceived Muslimness. The incidents accompanying the recent statistics range from verbal harassment to violence against Palestinian human rights supporters and represent an unprecedented surge in bigotry. CARE's research and advocacy director Corey Saylor said in a statement released to Al Jazeera, um, so she said that it's an unprecedented surge in bigotry. Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism are out of control in ways we have not seen in almost 10 years. So this is what this report says. On October 15, six-year-old Palestinian-American boy Wadia Al-Fayoum was stabbed to death at his Illinois home by the apartment's landlord in what police said was an anti-Muslim hate crime, reportedly in response to the Hamas attack on Israel. The UK has witnessed anti-Muslim language being used at universities, at schools, including people being called terrorists, reports uh, Tell Mama organization. So other incidents have included acts of vandalism. So. Um, so these, these, this gives us like just um, a short summary, of just looking uh, a glimpse of what has been happening, um, and, and there is a great surge in the Islamophobia, and a, as a result of that, there are acts of violence which are being committed, uh, which is purely, of course, the acts of injustice, and uh, the Muslims are being targeted. Maybe that they 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 may not even know about what is going on but they, they would be targeted and they would be um, sort of uh, whatever abuse uh, can be made, they, they would be um, sort of uh, inflicted upon them. So as regards the Ahmadiyya Muslims' efforts to change the image of Islam, um, as I mentioned earlier, the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmad, who is the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community as well, he has, uh, you know, since he became Khalifa, since he was appointed as a Khalifa of the, uh, the head of the community, he has been, right from the beginning, he has been asking people that the world is in danger and is, is on the verge of um, sort of um, uh, going into war with each other and this war is going to be a big disaster for the whole of the humanity and people are going to not only lose economically but they uh, the, it would be like a catastrophe so unless we do something unless we turn people towards the creator and start they they start thinking about 
other than their their own interests, their vested interests, they think as a wider community what what is more beneficial for the mankind, what is more beneficial for the humanity, unless they start thinking on those lines, um, there is a um, chance, big chance, that they will end up in a war. And we have seen within, you know, within our, 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 in front of our own eyes, we have seen the, the Ukraine, what is happening there. We are looking at uh, Syria, Yemen, uh, and so many other countries, what, whatever has been happening there. But these two conflicts particularly, you know. And then another thing is that you can see the bias that how people behave towards Ukraine and how be people behave uh, with Palestinians and the Palestine. See, you can see the big difference. People on both sides, you know, they are oppressors and they are those people who are being oppressed, of course. But who do you, who are you standing with? That's the question. And you can see clearly people who are with Ukraine all the time, uh, raising the flags of Ukraine. When they, they come to Palestine, uh, when it comes to Palestine, you know, they, they would not even speak a word in their favor. And, uh, and they would not say that the women and children, innocent children, you know, you can see every day um, on the media what is happening to them. And uh, nobody would say that this should be stopped. And this is, this is, this is like height of um, insensitivity. Uh, it is, uh, you know, you can't think that a human being can think like that. But this is, this is how the, the media has impacted on people's minds and they are totally brainwashed, not able to think for themselves. You know, we are living in a country where, you know, we give rights to everyone. We fight for everything. If somebody is, let's suppose, uh, has somehow uh, hurt you or did something wrong against you, definitely you will go after particularly that person or that group. You won't go, f you know, for an entire nation. And the same thing is, uh, you know, happened here. If particular group has been done something then definitely we should have uh, you know questioned them you should they, they have all the right to make sure that they don't repeat that thing again but because you know uh, rather than going through it what happened we uh, and they, they start uh, you know killing the children and we see on daily routine that how people have been killed and how they have no uh, houses they are living uh, outside, there many children have been killed. Parents are crying. There are children there. Their parents have been uh, dead. So you know the, the the situation there is quite frustrating, and we need to understand that we are living in a country where we have been told from the very young age that due rights should be given to everyone, regardless. And if there's a the problem that should be resolved, rather than you know we keep digging into it, and the the innocent have, uh, you know, been affected uh, because of that. So, you know, moving on uh, to Ahmadiyya Muslim efforts uh, to change the Islam's, uh, the image of Islam, uh, that UN report uh, very mentions that earlier, um, that, that the UN report that was mentioned earlier in the, in the show that strongly encourages interfaith dialogue between communities and outreach programs at various levels to combat Islamophobia. And <clears throat> the reason of Ahmadiyya Muslim Association of doing this is just to raise awareness. 
you know it's it's very important sometimes i've seen myself and uh, seeing myself you know the the khalif from the muslim association when he gave a speech to different uh, uh you know platforms whether it was in 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 uh, parliament or uh, in, in america or in other european parliament where people have attended they have listened and especially in the peace symposium which we you know held uh, whole every year he has given the speech to make sure that people understand what actually islam is and when they listen to the speech they come up the, with with this understanding that we have never had and we never knew that these are the teachings of islam these are the peaceful teachings of islam are and we see you know a big change in their uh the, the way they, they they see islam and this is the effort amdia muslim uh, association is putting to make sure to present a true image of islam the true teachings of islam front of you know entire world you know if we discuss outreach interfaith efforts you know would have you know even more positive impact if the mainstream media would give them more coverage explaining the responsibilities of media the current head of the ahmadiyya muslim community hazrat mirza masood ahmed said that i just want that when the media gives news it should do so with justice and honesty do not only give one side of the story when discussing islam by only focusing on extremists but rather also report upon those who are peaceful and who spread message of peace harmony and tolerance you know among the muslim community the ahmadiyya muslim community also makes you know concentrated efforts to promote the true teachings of islam not just in britain but around the globe as well we hold regular interfaith events on different scales and one of the thing you national peace symposium as i mentioned uh is the key event of ahmadiyya muslim community at the largest mosque in the western europe the event promotes a deep understanding of islam and uh, uh you know uh, and, and other faiths more than 800 guests from across the world attended attended the, the unique event including you know secretaries of state parliamentarians diplomats faith and civic leaders as well as representative from numerous charities and faith uh communities so you know one of the thing again is you know lies on the muslim shoulder as well that muslims must work together for peace in this regard you know his holiness once said that in these circumstances the muslim should at least realize their responsibility and should pay heed they must set aside their differences and must establish their unity in order to better their relationship with the people of the book if allah has given the commandment of the muslims to call them towards a word equal between us and you by uniting over the unity of god then muslims who have the same creed should unite between themselves and even more so by setting aside their differences they should ponder over this and should establish their unity this is the only way of removing injustice from the world he further said that let it be clear that i am not speaking in support or favor of any particular individual country what i wish to say is that all forms of cruelty wherever they exist must be eradicated and stopped regardless of whether they are you know perpetrated perpetrated by the people of palestine the people of israel or the people of any other country the cruelties must stopped 
because if they are allowed to spread then the flames of hatred will surely engulf the entire world to such an extent that people will soon for, forget about the troubles caused by the current economic crisis instead they will face a much more horrifying state of affairs there will be a huge loss of life that we cannot even comprehend or imagine so by listening to this you can understand that his holiness has been mentioning this from very for many many years and you know trying to convey this message that we are living uh on the edge of the of, of where there's there's a possibility that we cannot we are not able to have peace uh uh in 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 our surroundings that we have to make sure that we live our life with justice with uh, truth we should give due rights to people and if any nation you know violate rights of any other ultimately that nation would uh, you know react on that and to have that you know allah the almighty has mentioned that make sure that you're not you know uh, taking away somebody's right or not you know uh, over uh, taking uh, somebody's land or any other means which god almighty has given to them and if we shouldn't have any interest in others country if god whatever is you know god whatever god has given to us if we have interest in other countries taking over them ultimately what would happen we will not able to you know have or possess peace uh, in in the world and we see that you know regardless if it's um, you know any country if they are in war there's some reason behind it and to live peacefully you know we have to have mutual understanding and they have to have mutual understanding to you know work towards the peace rather than working uh you know towards uh, war and doing something which you know which leads to war it's it's very important to think about it and do those things which you know uh, give this kind of a surety that we won't or you know anybody won't end up with war and what happens you know there's so many innocent people dies regardless of ukraine or any arab countries or uh, gaza and palestine palestine what happens is so many people die just because that that you know the 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 people who have uh, authority over us they are deciding something which you know leading towards the war which is destroying the environment which is destroying the peace and you know we see that these uh, when when these things are happening when the war happens it goes long with us it's not something which should happen today and it will go away people have seen world war 1 world war 2 they you know very clearly they have this clear understanding that war is not the right way to solve the matters the right way is to discuss and to do a jihad what islam actually says to do a jihad with your pen pen is the right to express yourself to put what you think what is right what is wrong there are different kind of jihad in in islam to fight against your own self to kill your evil to be a better person to to do jihad through your money to sacrifice in the way of allah the almighty do a jihad through the quran to you know spread the teachings of islam so the different kind of jihad and one of the biggest jihad is to fight with your own self not to become a evil person to become a righteous person
So it is very important. First of all, we do this kind of jihad. It's, it's for everybody, regardless. You know, it's Muslims, they were very commanded. But I think if if you're listening our show, definitely this is very beautiful teaching that we have to fight with our own self first to become a better person rather than becoming a person who are not have good intentions. So this is the biggest jihad, which, you know, we have to follow. And this is what Islam teaches, teach, teachings are. And secondly, you know, if this is a time to war, uh, to, 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 to fight a war through the pen, through writing, through putting your, uh, you know, the, the problem you have and putting your case up and resolve it through the discussion and find a solution rather than, you know, uh, fighting with anybody. And it's for everyone, regardless, any country. We are followers, you know, we are people of book, book. we are followers of Allah the Almighty, the same light, same, same you know, uh, um, the same God who has, um, you know, we, we, have, we, we, we accept and we believe on. So it's very important that we understand that we are answerable to God Almighty, whatever we are doing in this world. If we are follower of the Prophet, Prophet were from God Almighty, and we have to be there once, we will be asked, we will be questioned what we have done. And if we are quiet, we are not standing up with justice. Again, we will be asked, I think, we need to make sure that we uh, you know, do whatever we can do in our own capacity. And the conclusion, you know, <clears throat> again, we are discussing, as I mentioned in the beginning, Islamophobia in war in Gaza and, uh, you know, uh, Israel. Um, we discuss about Islamophobia that Islam is a religion of peace. It's, it doesn't say that one should be fighting or doing suicide attack or anything. You know, Islam does not promote extremism. And it's very clear. And this is the understanding of entire Muslim Ummah. So we are not discussing particular people who think about it. So Islamophobia, you know, can make ordinarily, or ordinary peaceful and law-abiding people feel unwelcomed and isolated in a place uh, that is meant to be their home. So there's no doubt that more recently the media has been, you know, under intense scrutiny for inciting Islamophobia and perpetuating the stereotypes about Muslims and Islam. However, you know, the manifestation of Islamophobia in media of various forms has become increasingly uh, sophistica uh, sophisticated, hence difficult to, to detect. Research suggests that the main source of information regarding Islam is the media. So the world wide head of Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the fifth caliph, His Holiness, Hazamizah Masood Ahmad, has said countless times that ultimately it is the responsibility of Muslims to show the pure and beautiful face of Islam through their noble examples. So uh, we will end today's show with this note that if somebody is presenting something, they should present a true picture. You know, every picture has two fa uh, you know, every picture has two uh, faces and they should be presented properly rather than just mentioning one side because it doesn't fulfill the purpose. The purpose is to, you know, bring everybody cl closer. Is is the purpose of media, it should be the purpose of media to create peace uh, within the societies, to present in a way, you know, which is more, uh, create a love within each other religion rather than, you know, create a hate and uh, we hope that things change gradually and we will be working our work and uh, we will be keep uh, you know raising awareness and telling people what islam actually means 
which is peace. So with this note, I would like to thank the technical team who is working behind the scene. And uh, I would like to thank the producers of this show who has um, will present it to this show. And uh, we have some guests. We will discuss on different topics. Uh, it was an uh, amazing uh, uh, topic. So until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa